Hey, my name's Dion. I am uh, overjoyed to be here this morning to share the word with you. Um, it's going to be awesome. We're in our series on stories, diving into what the Christmas stories have for us, what um, is in the Word of God, um, and how He wants to speak to us um, through the story that He has written. Um, but first, here at True Life, we always take just a little bit um, to be quiet and ask God um, silently to speak to us from the Word, um, kind of take some time to center in and, and ask Him to, to talk to you. That um, as I preach that it wouldn't be my words, that it's God's words, um, and that um, as we open up the scriptures that we are drawn to love him more. So take just a little, a couple moments to be quiet and ask God to speak to you. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can be here this morning to worship you, um, and that we are able to be in your presence this morning um, to glean what we um, can from your word. God, I pray that as we read these words that we come to know you better, that we come to love you more, um, and that you just become more real to us in this Christmas season, that um, truly we can um, focus our hearts and our minds and our giving and our um, everything on you, Father, um, in this Christmas season. So God, speak this morning from your word um, and use your Holy Spirit to grow us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So our Advent word is this week is joy. Joy is what we are focusing on, um, and it, each season of Advent, we go through four different words. Advent, it just means to wait or to be in waiting, um, and in our waiting for the Christmas season, in our waiting for the coming Savior, we focus on hope, joy, peace, and love. Not in that order, obviously, but today is joy. Now, traditionally, when you hear a preacher talk about joy, they will say that joy isn't just happiness, or it's not just, um, it's not just pleasure, it's not just ecstasy, but it is, it is um, the deep feeling of happiness, the deep feeling of contentment, the deep feeling that things are right in our lives. It's not just how I feel when the Raiders win. The one mentioned today is that, that happens that lasts for like an hour. But this joy that we are talking about is joy that is everlasting. Joy that the Bible talks about that, is, that keeps continually pouring into our lives from God. That it's, a joy, it's a happiness that God gives us. It's, not, it's the kind of thing that we get when things are just great, when, when the thing that the, what we imagine is, is when things are exactly how we want them to be, exactly how we are trying to get them to be, life as it should be, until it's not. We have this longing for life as it should be, until it's not. Finally, I paid off my credit card, card, credit card debt. Oh, transmission went out. Finally, I got the little one to bed and to stop screaming. Oh, dropped my water glass and... Start the process all over again. I had a wonderful party with my friends last night at my house. Oh, now it's dirty. I got the job I've always wanted. Oh, my boss is a real piece of work. That's not true for me. <laughs> I just realized that that can be taken wrong. That's not true for me. <laughs> that is not true. I still want my job here. <laughs> uh, that's not, that just happens. That's just what we think. We go for these things, we pursue these things, we have this vision of these things that we want for our lives that we think will give us joy, that deep uh, feeling of contentment, um, that things are as they should be. We always want the completeness, we, the restedness, the, the achievement um, that we want, that's something we pursue, it's something that we, it feels like it's built into us to long for, to go after. 
And we look for that in funny ways sometimes. I was Googling just stats on joy, um, and an article came up that was eight stats that will change your joy. And so uh, let me go through these eight stats, and then we can go, because this has the answers to everything. Um, the first is six or seven hours per day of socializing. That leads to the highest level of happiness. I know that there are people in this room that if you socialize for six or seven hours a day, you would go crazy. But that's not true. This is apparently science. Ten, the number of friends it takes to give your well-being a big boost. Again, I know there's people in here that can't handle having three friends. The five, the number of positive interactions happy couples have for every negative one. Okay with that. That's good. $75,000, the annual salary it takes to put a smile on the average person's face. So we all live, but most of us live in Jeffco, and so we're, we should be good. 87 grand or 120 grand now, we're great. One, the distance in miles to keep close friends within. That's not true for, it's not true for me. My friends aren't all within a mile, and I'm, I have good friends. 33, 55, and the 70s. They have all been called the happiest age in various studies and surveys. So 32, don't even think about it. Anywhere between 33 and 55, don't think about it. And between 55 and 70, don't think about it. You're not going to be happy, okay? These are the times when you're going to be happy. And there was one more that was a little too uh, R-rated that I won't put up here, but the last one is this. 40, the approximate percentage of your happiness that is actually, truly up to you. The majority of your joy isn't up to you. Is what, so it gives us all the, the, the world gives us all these advices of how to be joyful, and then it still has to acknowledge that the majority of our joy cannot be controlled by anything that we can do. An F grade worth of our joy is the amount that we have control over. So even if I had all those things, six to seven hours a day of socialization, all my friends, I could walk to their house, X, Y, Z. I'm 33 years old. I still, 60% of my joy, I cannot control. And I think that's big, that even the world can see that. Even outside of our Christian worldview, we can see that people know that sometimes joy is just out of our reach. Mostly, joy is out of our reach. Our joy mostly comes from what is outside of us. And again, remember, we're not talking about just pleasure. I'm just talking about a burst of excitement, a burst of happiness real quickly. But we're talking about the true sense of, yeah, things happen, but I'm good. Life is good. And often, if you're like me and my family or my wife's family, we get to Christmas and we feel this way. This is like Christmas is the pinnacle of, of feeling like things as they're supposed to be. You know, you're drinking eggnog, you're looking at lights, you're expecting presents, you, you get to see family. It's just so much joy that comes with the Christmas season. Or maybe you're the opposite, and for a lot of us, it's the opposite. It's, it's different. It's Christmas services, negative feelings, negative memories, has a more negative effect on our joy. Well, the Christmas story as a whole is a story of hope, peace, love, and joy. And today, the story that we lean into really does lean into this aspect of joy, of true joy. And my prayer is that we can see that what happened, that as we look at this story that actually happened, that gives us this joy, that we can look at who it's for, who God offers us to, and what even the purpose of this joy is, that, there, that our joy actually has a reason to it. It's not just so that you're happy. Our joy has a reason. And so, to, so uh, follow along with me as we jump into Luke chapter 2 to talk about the story of Jesus' birth and the wise men. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph uh, also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family line of David. Back then, you had to go to where your family was from to do the census thing, because he was house of the family line of David. To be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant with Jesus. Newsflash. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, near them, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Now when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. So first is what happened. We, we're, our joy comes from outside of us, and, and if we read Scripture and understand our faith properly, we know that our joy comes from God. But something had to happen to give us this story. So what happened? What's happening in this story? And the first thing that happens is that Jesus is born. And I want to meditate on that just for a second with us. Like Christmas is, is a fun season where we come across a lot of like funny stories and, and, and telltales and, and some lies. I'm not going to spoil the big lie for anybody, but you guys know what I'm talking about. And there's lots of stories. I'm not going to spoil it for anybody. You don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, that, that we hear that are obviously not true, but they make us feel good. And they make us, they remind us of the goodness of the Christmas season. They give us a good, fun thing to think about, a good, fun way to put out cookies on Sunday morning. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm getting to. I'm not, I don't have to give you any more clues. And I'm not saying that this makes us not believe Jesus. I believe that everybody in this room probably believes Jesus. If you don't, let's talk later. But Jesus is real. And we need to remember that. We need to rest and, and think about the fact that this isn't just a story that gets wrapped up into how Rudolph got his place on the sleigh. This, isn't just a, this isn't, doesn't need to be wrapped up in that. We need to re- remember and think about that this is history. Like, the, the Son of God was born. It happened. The, like, God was a human. God became a real human, walked to the earth like we walked to the earth. This is a big deal. This actually happened. In our joy, our faith rests on this event, this event that changed the cosmos, this event that changed the world. And so Jesus became, or God became a human. Let's do, get, dive into a little bit of theology, a little bit of Christology here, okay? Stick with me. The humanity of Christ refers to this reality that in his incarnation, so in his humanness, in his 
you know, carnal state, the Son of God assumed a complete human nature with all its limitations, but without in any way surrendering his divinity, so that he might serve as our representative, our substitute, and our example. So let's dive into that a little bit, okay? In John, we read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he became a person. He became a person that has bones and flesh and blood and was among people. The Nicene Creed, which is just a statement of faith of Orthodox Christianity, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was born as a human. Early church fathers, there's a saying that goes around that says, without ceasing to be what he was, so without ceasing to be God, he became what he was not. He became a human. So he was born. He grew up and he developed. Later on in this chapter, it says the child grew and became strong and grew in wisdom and stature with the Lord. So he had to like grow up. He had to learn how to use the potty. He had to learn how to eat. He had to learn how to use his manners. He was probably the most well-mannered kid out there, um, I would guess. He experienced human finitude. He hungered. He thirsted. He grew tired. He experienced the full range of ordinary emotions that were non-sinful. So he was angry. He was sad. He was happy. He experienced those emotions. Jesus suffered. News, uh, spoiler alert, he died, and he was buried, and then he resurrected in his bodily form as a person. He continues his work as the person of God at God's right hand. And when he returns, another spoiler alert, he comes back, he will come back, and he will be in his humanity. Jesus was born a person just like you and I, different than you and I, because he's God. We're not going to get into that, but he was a person, and this happened. And so what does that mean for us? I said that he's our representative, our substitute, in our example. Let's break that down just a little bit. Because the horrors of sin and death, give you a little bit of backstory on that, God created the world really good, and he put two people in the garden, Adam and Eve, and they messed it up, okay? This brought in sin and death and life as we experience it, that we truly, or that we are always going after something else, going after something that's going to give us, make us whole, okay? So we experience sin, we experience brokenness, okay? Because the horrors of that came through the original human pair, the, the one to remedy this decision must be himself a human. A human made a mistake, a human needs to fix the, fix the mistake. The seed of the woman, Jesus is the last Adam, as Paul tells us later on in this book. The true human, not in, the, not in Luke, in the Bible. The true human in whom fallen humanity can be reconciled to God, okay? So he's our representative. We needed a human to, to, to take over what humans messed up. He's a substitute, kind of the same but different. Christ renders to God not only active obedience but passive obedience as well. So active obedience meaning he knows what to do and he's doing it passive. It's being undone unto him. In other words, we are saved by his vicarious suffering and death on our behalf. So our iniquity, our brokenness, our hurt, the, the, the sludge that lives inside of us deserves death. It deserves, like, punishment. And he is our substitute punishment. God died in his human form as Jesus on our behalf. So we needed him as a person. We needed him to die and the next thing we needed him was for our example. Christ constitutes the unconditional gift of our salvation. He died for us, but he also serves as our great example. 1 Peter 1, 
First Peter 2, sorry. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. As the true person, the one who exemplifies God-honoring, spirit-led, spirit-filled filled human obedience, Christ is the one whom we are to imitate in our life, to imitate our obedience. So he is our substitute, he is our representative, and he is our example. What happened? Jesus was born. That's the, that's the big idea of Christmas. That's why we celebrate Christmas, Jesus was born. So we need to remember that something happened. More things happened in this story, obviously, where the angels showed up and the shepherds work as they're working at night, scared them, and announced that this is news of, good news of great joy for all people, and, and told them that the, the Christ was born, that the Messiah was born. He, said they, he names him Messiah, Savior, and Lord. These are three things about Jesus that we need to get, to get right. Messiah or Christ in the New Testament is speaking to the one who was prophesied of. In the Old Testament, there are so many, th- like I could put up probably 100 verses up here that, t- that point towards Jesus. And this is, he is the one that, that the Bible that the people had before Jesus came. He is the one that this all points to. He is the anointed one, the chosen one, the one who fulfills these prophecies. So he's the, the Messiah. He's our Savior so redeemer, fixer of our souls, the cleaner of the sludge in us, the cleaner of the badness in the world, the, 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 the bringer of the kingdom of God, which eradicates or will eradicate all sin and brokenness in the world. And here's our Lord, the ruler who has power over everything. And then the next thing that happens is the hosts. What is a heavenly host? It's just a group of people from heaven or things from heaven. They're heavenly and heavenly army. This is the first flash mob. <laughs> Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. They show up and they're singing that. I don't know how they sing it, so I'm not going to try. Um, but the biggest thing in the history of history happened. God became a person. The one is here. The guy is here. And this has big implications on us and demands praise from the heavens and from the earth, as we see demonstrated by the heavenly hosts. And so who does this affect? And in our story, this is obviously the shepherds. Let me take a quick drink. So the shepherds, who are these people? I looked up, I googled pictures of them, googled these pictures of what shepherds looked like. Very nice looking guy, taking care of sheep. And then he's a real one. Nice man. He's, got, he's not smiling, but he looks nice. I'd talk to him. But that's not really the picture that's actually painted in history of who shepherds were. Now, this week, I was introduced to a new tool that's better than Google called AI. Okay? And so I couldn't find on Google a picture of a, of a true representation of a nasty looking shepherd. And so I AI'd it. And this is what it created for me. It's a little better. But a computer created that. That's crazy. We're not going to get into that. But AI created that picture. But shepherds were insignificant, despised, dirty, gruff, not nice people. They, it, they were the lowest of the low. And actually, their lives were kind of ironic. So their job, a shepherd's job, is to take care of the animals that would be sacrificed to atone for the sins of people. And so in temple worship, if you sinned, you had to kill something to make up for that sin. That's really short explanation of what that is. And the things that needed to be killed were taken care of by these shepherds. 
Yet because of their handling of these dirty things, these dirty creatures, they themselves were unclean and thus prevented from keeping ceremonial law. So they were inescapably dirty, inescapably unclean, inescapably able to come to the presence of God and be made right with God. And because of this, they were regarded as untrustworthy, irreligious, outside of of what God wants or what God is doing for his people, which is kind of ironic, I think, that people could not do this, that people could not make up for themselves without these people that would never be able to make up for themselves. If shepherds died away, things wouldn't be taken care of and all the wolves would eat the the sheep and nobody would be able to be made right with with God. That's That's how it was designed in the Old Testament. So these guys would usually be the last people it would apply to, that this message that Jesus, the God of the Bible that they have been reading, has been born and that he's come, this would be the last people this this would apply to. Let's let's put it this way. You you, uh, get a new job at Amazon. You're a part-time, and you're just throwing boxes in a truck. That's your job. Lowest person on the totem pole. First day, part-time job. You get a message from your boss that Jeff Bezos is flying you out to his space station to talk to you about something. Okay? Get on the plane, go talk to Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos tells you, hey, I'm selling the company and giving everybody an equal share of how much I'm selling the company for, um, and I need you to tell everybody. The, the lowest person on the totem pole has been given the biggest news. And just to, get, I just to bring the illustration a little farther, Amazon is worth $908 billion. That's what I saw. It's probably more today um, than three days ago. But, and they have 1.6 million employees, including part-time people. So that would be $568,000 per person. A lot of money, okay? Jeff Bezos gives the lowest person on the totem pole that message to give to everybody else. That's what's happening here, essentially. The people that are totally outside of the realm of who would be given this news, who would, this news would apply to, are being given the, the greatest message, the biggest news that has ever happened. If I had big news, I'm calling the news, you know? Call YouTube. <laughs> call, call Fox, call CNN. That's what I'm doing. If I got news that's for good, g- great joy for all people, that's what I'm telling. I want everybody to know. But God starts at the bottom. And what we need to see here is we must realize our true place in the grand picture of what God is doing in our salvation, what God does for us in salvation. This, this, I think people really quickly jump to this, this story and quickly jump to the fact of we need to go bring the gospel to the lowest of the lows, and that is not wrong. That is true. That is, but I think that is the outflowing of what this message truly is, is that we are last, that we are the lowest of the lows. And, and technically, by bloodline, we all are. We're not a part of the, we're not part of the Jews. We're, we're Gentiles. So tech, like even, even by your DNA, we are last. But truly, because of this sin that lives in us, we are all dirty, despised, inescapably clean people. Inescapably unclean, sorry. I'm so squeaky clean. <laughs> we are the lowest of the lows. We are the shepherds. This is what this is speaking to us. And what God is giving to us ought to lead us to the lowest of the lows, to bring the gospel to those that are hurting, those that we see as outside of our comfortability, those that we see as outside of our family of God, those we see as stinky. That should draw us to those people. We must come humbly to Christ. We cannot take this message as someone who is high on a totem pole or high in a throne. We must take this message humbly. It reminds me of something that, for some reason, Caleb tells me all the time that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, is when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him to come and take the lowest place you can, death. 
That will be the lowest that we all achieve is when we die. And that's the calling of the Christian faith is to die to ourselves, to give ourselves over to Jesus. Or I'm reminded of the story of the rich young ruler. This is later on in Luke. Rich young guy, rich good-looking young guy who has a lot of power, approaches Jesus and asks him, how must I inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, to sum it up, sell all your stuff, give it your money to the poor. Take the lowest spot. Get rid of all your treasures. We are the lowest of the low. We must take the position of the shepherds to get the joy that God wants for us, to be a part of this joy and fearless joy that God wants for us. So who is it for? It's for all people. It's for all of us. And it starts at the bottom. Started from the bottom, now we're here. <laughs> um, so, but why? Why all this? Why did God come as a man or as a baby? Why did God become a person? Why did, why did he come to save us in our lowly state? Why, why did that happen? Why? Um, I, I want to submit to you something in this passage that, and in the Bible that God is all about his glory. The Bible is about God's glory. And this passage is about God's glory. Oh, my highlights didn't come through. That's all right. I highlighted it, but it's not on there. Okay, so let me just read it. <laughs> so in verse uh, 9, it says, Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. God's glory. Then the heavenly host show up. Glory to God in the highest heaven and people, peace on earth to people he favors. And then at the end, the shepherds returned to their job, returned to their life, glorifying and praising God for all the things that had been seen and heard. It's a bummer that the highlights didn't get up there. God is about his glory. This is about God's glory. Now, what does that mean? What, is, what does God's glory even mean? Now, I'm reminded of, of an interview that I watched of one of my favorite uh, people in the world, and I actually met him, John Piper. Um, and he, someone asks him to define God's glory, and it's like he differentiates it like it's trying to explain the, uh, the difference between trying to explain what a basketball is and what beauty is. Like if I have a basketball, I can tell you that it's orange, it's round, it's about this size, it's got black stripes on it, and when I bounce it, it comes back to my hand and makes a really pleasing noise. And to play basketball, I shoot it in a hoop, that's why it's called a basketball. And you would go out into the world and you'd see that object and say, oh, that's a basketball, okay? But beauty, it's like, uh, that's, that's, that's beautiful. I, I use examples, I use like, like things to, to talk about beauty, or I talk about the opposite of beauty. I'll talk about how uh, some, I'm ugly, I'm not beauty. Like, just talk about how something is dif- different. We can, we can, it's hard to put definition on things like that, and that's how John Piper speaks about glory. And so let's try and define it. Let's try. In Isaiah 6, it says the, the, that one angel is crying to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the next thing is the whole earth is full of his Glory. And then in, uh, in Leviticus, among those who are near me, I will be holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified. So among those who are near me, I will exist as a holy, set-apart, good God, and as they see me, I will be glorified. Glory. So holiness is how God exists as good and beautiful and perfect, and glory is the manifestation of that. It is what we can see, is what we can be a part of. Glory is the manifest of holiness. To see, to comprehend, to experience God's holiness is to glorify God. 
It starts with being surrounded by it. And rightfully so, these guys are scared. It says the, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified because perfectness is something that they're not used to. They're inescapably unclean. And then the effects of his glory are lived out. So fearlessness and joy is the first message that the angel gives to them. They do not fear, but I have joy. I have giving, we're bringing you the message of joy and fearlessness. And so the effects of it start with fearless joy. And then they're eager to see him. It, it, it moves straight from when they had left, they said, let's go. Let's go see him. Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see Jesus, the real manifestation of God's glory. So it's fearless, fearless joy, then it's eagerness to go see God, to go worship God. And this is really funny. Luke, he, they get to him. They hurried off and found both Joseph and Mary and the baby who was lying in the manger. Doesn't talk about what they did. Doesn't talk about what they saw. It just says, after that, they went and reported the message. It moves, moves straight on to the message. And so we, we get fearless joy given to us. We get eagerness to go see God. We run to God. And then we go and broadcast it. This message, this, this manifestation of glory that we experience is something that needs to immediately be spread out there. And then it says that they told people and they were amazed, that they marveled at what the shepherds were telling them. They're not used to these nasty, dirty people running up to them and telling them, you got to see this. God is here. God was born. This really happened. The Savior is here. There's amazement. And then it says that Mary stored these things up and treasured them in her heart. The next effect of glory is that we can actually rest on these things and be thankful about what happened. We can meditate on what God has done in our lives, but also what God has done in Scripture, that this happened. Meditate on it, and it will bring us true joy. And it will bring us true uh, uh, ponderment and bring us true just amazement, amazement and thankfulness. This is what Mary's doing here. And then the last effect was that they returned. They returned to their lives. The sheep would have died if they wouldn't come back. But they returned and glorified and praising God in their life, in their job. Returned to their people, to the other shepherds, the people they, they experience in town. They returned to them and glorified God and manifested the glory of God to people around them. And so the effect of the joy that we are given through this event that happened is the manifestation of glory in our lives. Is that we return, we experience all these things, we get the fearless joy, we're eager to see him, we worship him, we broadcast it, we're amazed, we get to ponder it, and then we return to our lives and we continue to manifest that beautiful message that actually happened here in the Christmas story. In the end, it's all for his glory. His glory manifested in your life and his glory manifested in the lives of people around you, in your job, in your family, everywhere that you are. So we not only find this true joy that we're longing for, this fearlessness that we're longing for, but we find our true purpose in the glorification of our Heavenly Father that sent His Son to die on our behalf. Amen. <laughs> his glory became manifest to us, revealed to us in His Son a real happening, a real thing that happened. Just like you were born, he was born. Wasn't conceived the same way, but he was born. And each week we, we celebrate and remember this in, in, the, in a very small manifestation of God's glory that we can experience here through communion. Every week, if you're, and if you're a Christian, I encourage you, if you haven't already, go grab a communion cup um, to take communion with us. But each week we celebrate and remember how God manifested himself to us and how he died for us. The body represents his, or the 
I make this mistake every week. The bread represents his body broken for us, and the juice represents his blood spilled for us. Like I said earlier, we needed a substitute, a representative. And as we take communion, reflect on that. Reflect on the things, reflect on, on the, uh, the effects of God's glory to us. Reflect that you can have true joy, that that joy is available to you because he died for you. Reflect on the fact that we can have an eagerness and an excitement to come and join together to worship and come before God because he died for you. Reflect on how we go from here, how we broadcast this, how we ought to broadcast this to people around us because something happened, because he died for you. He was born and then, was, and then died for you. And then be amazed, treasure and meditate on this. And then go and glorify God. That's the next step. Hopefully you could see how I see the amazement of, of the gospel story, of, of Jesus' birth story, and of the story of him bringing the message to the lowest of the lows first and carry this out of here. It doesn't supposed, it's not supposed to end here. They do, it doesn't end with just going to see Mary and Joseph. It ends with going out and telling people and returning to our lives and glorifying God in that and manifesting God there. So his glory made manifest becomes real to us as we come before him and worship him and carry it out. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the Westminster Catechism. You find your true purpose, you find your true joy in the glorification of your Father. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. But God, right now, we just want to thank you for coming. We just want to thank you that you were born, that you experienced all that we experienced. And not only that, but you gave us the example of how to live, and you died in our place, that you were our substitute, that you bore the wrath that we deserved to bore. God, I pray that as we have come to marvel before you in your word today, that we could carry it with us and glorify God in our lives, in our work, in our homes, to our families as we travel for Christmas, to everybody that we encounter, God, that we could be the manifestation of your glory in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.